Today, we're talking about the life and legacy of Pope Benedict XVI on Spirit Inspire, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Hello and welcome back to Spirit Inspire. I'm your host today, Eric Huff, and I'm joined today with my wonderful co-hosts, and obviously it's sweater weather, John Soule. Hey, everybody. And Isaac Fox. How's it going? And today we're going to be talking about, we'd be remiss um, to not speak about Pope Benedict XVI um, and his passing. I know we're a couple weeks out, but... Uh, I think that uh, it's a historic moment, his death, and uh, it's already overshadowed um, a big part of these first couple weeks of the year. So uh, so I just kind of wanted to, to bring him up, have some reflections, maybe uh, theologically, um, what does Pope Benedict mean to you through his writings, through his teachings, um, and maybe like some some personal stories of Pope Benedict and uh, and and what kind of impact he's made. So does anyone want to start us off with a with a good Pope Benedict um, story? Hmm. Stories are always something I love. Um, well, I remember when he was elected. I was in eighth grade, which uh, it was a week uh, a week after my confirmation. Pope John Paul II died, which was of course intense for all of us and Pope Benedict, or the future Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, actually gave the homily at his funeral yeah. and that was very meaningful uh, for all of us. Though, of course, I didn't know who he was at the time, as, especially as a 14-year-old that your whole world is kind of like opening up when something like that happens. Well, there's never been another Pope your whole life. My entire life, right, exactly. Yeah. So then, um, then I remember our pastor had got, he had bought a hat that said Pope Benedict the 16th it was all in white when he was elected and he was super excited about that but um, it was uh, it was just uh, an amazing thing to witness uh, hearing about a new Pope and and all of what would come from that but um, for me I, I think uh, it was just his uh, his desire to pay honor and tribute to his uh, predecessor you know, and carry on his legacy, John Paul II. And that's part of what I think Pope Benedict uh, did so well, that he, he didn't put himself first. He was, he was more focused on, you know, um, I think carrying on a legacy and not trying to be someone he wasn't. But yet at the same time, he also brought his own unique genius, right? I mean, he was one of the most incredibly intelligent theologians in perhaps human history, but definitely the 20th century. Brilliant, he, brilliant. I mean, absolutely Pro brilliant. Probably mind. number one. Right, probably number one. Yeah. <laughs> um, his writings are, are prophetic. Uh, the things he did to help us understand the, the beauty of what Vatican II was meant to bring. And the, the, uh, to me, the book that I read later, you know, years later, was The Spirit of the Liturgy. Yeah. That I think is just so uh, meaningful and... Uh, filled with such richness that my goodness the, and that's just one book think of the encyclicals think of everything he did for the church 
uh, I'm just, I'm excited to see what God has in store uh, as we, just like John Paul II, more deeply appreciate the legacy uh, of Pope Benedict in his writings and what he left behind. Yeah. You mentioned how he was continuing the work of John Paul II in some ways, but I would say almost more so that of Vatican II. It, it wasn't, I think John Paul II and Benedict XVI were both really children of the council. They were both seeking to, um, to set the spirit of the council into motion in the church. Yes. So that it was not just something of, we had a council, here are the documents, now we're going to shelve these and let them get dusty. They were, the t they were two popes that wanted to actually get the ball rolling. And one of Benedict's famous lines was the hermeneutic of continuity, because mm. yeah. we know that the Second Vatican Council <clears throat> That can be a very is, confusing phrase, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, what yeah the we can, and we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. But the Second Vatican Council is a matter of a lot of, well, it's controversial, right? You have people that love it, people that hate it, people that misunderstand it, people that, you, you know, that quote this side and quote this side, right? So there's been all this kind of drama over the council. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that drama focuses in on, was this council a break with Catholic tradition? Was it something new and totally different? Or was it a natural evolution of traditional Catholic teaching as we approach a new age? And John Paul II and Benedict XVI were both basically saying, no, it's, it's, it's purely a growth, a development, an evolution. It's not a break with past tradition. Right. It wasn't and, a chopping down of an oak tree. <laughs> right. And that was what was meant by Benedict's phrase, a hermeneutic of continuity, right? It is a, con a continuation 2,000 years of church teaching and, and tradition. But it kind of occurred to me, I was thinking a little bit before this, that John Paul II was an almost universally loved figure. You know, he was charismatic. Yeah. People of different faiths, non-Catholics, you know, so many people loved him. And uh, Benedict XVI certainly had and has a big fan base, uh, but not of the level of John Paul II. You know, he, he didn't, I wouldn't want to call him controversial, but I think he had, um, I think it's going to take longer to understand his legacy, if that makes sense. John Paul II? Uh, no, a, oh, a Benedict. Oh, I, think, yeah. I think John Paul II was appreciated perhaps more immediately, more in his own, in his own time. Right. And I think, um, I think that maybe uh, Benedict was uh, maybe misunderstood or misjudged by a lot of people and this might be worth talking about i don't know what you all think but i think a lot of that focuses in on one point probably one of the nicknames that will go down in history for him is god's rottweiler you all remember yeah this? that's I, exactly I, what uh, my pastor I, said I had, a, I had a priest tell me that 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 um that he's he knew um ratzinger in uh germany and he said they take that as a slur that, I, that's how I think was that how it was meant, probably. Yeah, it's like a slur. So it's right. not it's not it's not like the hound of heaven. No, not at so all. So he has a he was actually like a very gentle right. man. I think this is what Isaac's getting at. But it is. a very gentle man and uh the press, you know, um definitely portrayed this image of um 
this hard nose, difficult to right. work with, and, and, and use this rigid, uber the, traditionalist, old fashioned this slur. Yeah, and that was the idea of, behind the the phrase "God's Rottweiler," like this mm. German bulldog kind of thing, who's vicious and mean tempered and stubborn and and stuck in his ways and. And you That's would not find he was you all. would find this this idea that he was bringing back the Inquisition. Right. There, uh, there, so yeah. and this goes along. I with do remember that. some of those thoughts. And yeah. so uh, one of the things that I just wanted to say was first of all that completely misunderstands Benedict as a person. And this is this is your point, Eric. He was a man of deep kindness, deep kindness, and love. Um, it, not only was he the Pope, but he really would have just been like the ideal grandfather, I think, that everybody would have liked to have had. Um, he was also a man of a certain a deep humility and perhaps shyness, as well as being a brilliant theologian. Yeah. And this may be where a little bit of this misunderstanding comes from, because John Paul II always comes across as very extroverted, very charismatic, right? And, um, you know, maybe Benedict was more retiring, maybe a little, you know, less interested in being reserved. in the public eye, a little more yeah. reserved. <clears throat> um, I, I suspect he was the kind of man that probably would have been very happy to have been shut away in a monastery, praying and studying for the rest of his life. He seemed to have always been appointed to positions, you know, like being the Pope against his will. And this was not what he wanted to do. eventually was able to discern that to be yeah. God's will later yeah. on, even, recognizing even, that he it, couldn't follow in John Paul II's footsteps on that level, right? Even the very humble, yeah. uh, the humility of Pope Francis, he's still clearly an extroverted man. Yeah, right. Uh, and he, he says, I, I need to live life with people. Um, you know, he breaks bread, um, you know, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and there's probably three other meals in there in Italy um, that I'm not right. thinking of. Um, <laughs> yeah. with, with others. Like the hobbits, whereas, second breakfast. Yeah, whereas, I mean, with Pope Benedict, too, even with his relationships, now he was a man of age when he passed away, but, but you know, for Archbishop Ganswine, uh, his secretary, it's like the closest person to him is, is his secretary, still a very formal um, relationship, I think, uh, right. kind of speaks to that, that... Yeah. Um, not that he wasn't loving or um, personable or, in, or any of those things, but but definitely just a more introverted nature. Yeah. I think everybody who knew him realized how kind and how loving he was and how deep his humility was. But yes, more introverted. Um, but I think when we think of like this whole idea of Inquisition, of God's Rottweiler, we think of these kind of terms that got thrown around. He... He was very interested, of course, in truth and the orthodoxy of the doctrines of the Catholic faith. And I think there's a very unfortunate tendency in our times that if you are dogmatic about anything, you're therefore heartless, right? Yeah. That, and that is not true. I think that a person can be deeply concerned about the truth, wanting to be very clear about the truth, wanting to preach the truth, but also speaking it with love. Yes, but that does not mean that they are somehow a harsher and loving person. So the fact that he had that role under John Paul II of being the head of the uh, CDF, the CDF, right, the Congregation for the, the Doctrine of the Doctrine faith. of the Faith, which is you know had been the Inquisition centuries ago. Gosh, right. You know, um, the fact that he had that role, I think, maybe led people to view him in that light. But that doesn't say that doesn't say anything about his heart at all. 
You know, oh, it does. So it'd be a grave misunderstanding. But yeah, he was what all pretty much all sessions of the Second Vatican Council. Yep. He was one of the chief chief movers in that. Yeah, the, b- between him and uh, they would they would use this theologians as resource, and uh, between him and Eve Congar, I don't know um, of any any name that's that would be more influential, um, just because they they were the theologians that the bishops would go to yeah. when they when they had a question, and more so because he's younger at the time, more so I think it'd be accurate to say than John Paul II, whom we probably associate more with that council. Yeah. And people, I think, have this view of, of Ratzinger and later Benedict now as being sort of uber-traditionalist and conservative. But when you realize he was one of the main voices and thinkers and movers in Vatican II, um, I think that has to put in, give us a little bit of an idea of his heart and his mind of where he was at. Yes. Right? Um, and I, so I, I think, and this is where, in a long-winded way, I was going with this, I sometimes feel that Pope Benedict gets loved and hated by certain people for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. right? And for the same reason. Like some of the people who love him are loving him with this the same idea that other people hate him for. This idea that he was some kind of uber-traditionalist, over-conservative. Super intense, rigid. Right. Out, yeah, and right. so you have, some people love that. Right. I and mean, that's not a good thing so you have, you have some people that... Uh, that, that w- kind of create this caricature of Benedict as being that kind of person, they say, well, we don't like that, right? Right. And then on the other hand, you have people that maybe are leaning more towards um, hyper-traditionalism themselves, yeah. right? That want to take Benedict as then their guy, their hero. And I think that maybe that's a, that's a mistake on both sides to do that. Yes. And, I mean, my goodness, when you read just a, a snippet of his book, God is Love, you know that his that, first encyclical. His, his first encyclical. That's Deus what I mean. That to me yeah. is like some of the most intense, beautiful imagery. And he talks about the, I mean, passion and eros and all of, you know, how God's love in agape and human love in eros are meant to be joined together in a way that helps us help. Uh, channel our passions, channel our deep longings and desires for happiness, for joy, for all the things that get people into trouble that many of these rigid, really hyper-pious people are often overly suspicious of and think Pope Benedict would be in agreement with. Pope Benedict is actually saying very much what John Paul II would say. When it comes to our desires, we have to learn how to open them up to God's transformative power so that the lies we believed, the the things that we've grasped onto can be detached from and untwisted so that we can enjoy things rightly. And this is all, I mean, this is Pope Benedict. Yeah. You know, I mean, my gosh, the it things sounds, he said. What you're saying would sound like this is John Paul II. Yes, but, but it's it, not as Pope Benedict. It's, it, and if so this is what shows you the continuity yeah. between their papacies. They weren't yeah. opposites. Not at all. And it's a beautiful gift. I think, if you. anything, they had different personalities. But I don't think that theologically or their idea about, you know, the church's relationship to mission in the world in modern times, all that, I don't think they were so radically different. No. No, they weren't. It was a gift. The uh, the thing that's sticking out to me with, with that is, um, you know, to think of the time period that, that Pope Benedict was born, 
and grew up in. And then to think that he lived yeah. through the council and was a young, a young but brilliant theologian. That, what is that he born? 25 or 27? Somewhere in there? He was 95. So oh, he, so I guess we could do the math. He would have been in 1927, yeah. probably. Yeah. 27. And then uh, to live, but, but to be so far ahead of the time with this thought process, yes. to be somebody who was, uh, you know, born in 1927 what? and to have like these these ideas that not have that have not only shaped our world but we haven't even unpacked all of them right. because they they belong pretty much to the future i would say yeah. and then also to think uh you know whenever a pope dies they have that that last testament I read I forget that. what that's called. The the spiritual testament. Spiritual testament. Yeah, he very... wrote it right after he was elected pope in two thousand six, but it's not meant to be released until right when he passed. Away. Oh, interesting. And it interesting. and it says uh, it says uh, you know in there as I reach this late stage of life, my last <laughs> right. stage, and it was almost twenty more years that he lived. <laughs> yeah. He lived a remarkably long life, and for him, you know, another thing that stands out to that isn't just his birth. In that century um, that he lived through, it's that um, you know at his death that you know he's clear of mind. Mm -hmm. uh, there's recording of his last words. Um, that were, is a happy. What were they? I missed it. I think it was "Lord, I love you." Yeah. Um, and so that's so beautiful. So I don't know how well attested to that that hadith is, but uh, <laughs> I don't know who heard it. I think maybe. Um, one of the nurses or something, but wow. you know, but to have that clarity of mind and to live into that long age. He was still writing two years ago. Oh yeah. You know, what right. was the book he did with Cardinal Seurat? Yeah. A couple of years ago, right? From Just, the depths of our hearts. Yeah, Is was that, that three years ago, something like that? And yeah. Yeah. So to think like um to have that clarity of mind, because yeah. a lot of people go out screaming, you know, even even holy people um don't die. You know, without some some type of advanced mental deterioration, um, to go out clear-minded, to age. be able to have the last words, and then the other crazy part that that also links it to a happy death. I know it's the pagan New Year, right? Mm. We start our New Year at Advent. Yeah. We're not pagans here at uh, Spirit right. Inspire, right? But um, <laughs> she just called like everybody a pagan. Well, yeah, like the. the <laughs> I still enjoy my good New Year's party. You look at anyone's name on Wikipedia. You always right. look. Oh well, when did they? When were they born? When did they die? It's in the. It's in the square yeah. at the top. Uh, whenever you pull up anybody's wiki page, and, and you're always drawn to that. And I've never seen someone who died on the last day of a year, who saw the entirety of one year, but not a day of the next. That is pretty incredible. Like I think that that's crazy. <laughs> Uh, it's it's kind of mind blowing. So there's there's certain things around his death that uh, to me seemed as though I mean we don't really know um, you know what they always say about popes and and you know he wasn't the the sitting pope of course but uh, what they say about the pope is the pope's uh, always okay um, is what they tell the press until until, until he's after he's dead passed away. and even a little bit after that right right. <laughs> So like, you never uh, really know what's going on behind closed doors in anyone's situation, let alone the Pope. But uh, it does seem, you know, that does seem to be a very happy death. Yeah, It does. And for that kind of life lived. Uh, and you were talking about how he grew up. I thought it was profound that, you know, for him to come immediately after uh, Pope John Paul II's papacy. And, you know, Pope John Paul II was Polish. Mm -hmm. And... Pope Benedict was German, yeah. 
And we know what happened was in the he? 1940s. Really? <laughs> during the 20th century that those two men lived through. Yeah. So yeah. I, it, for the church to then prop up two men from those very countries that suffered so much or, or caused so much suffering. Experience with it. And to have those personal experiences Both, and yeah. be able to speak directly to the trauma that is still taking time to heal from. You know, we, we interviewed my good friend, uh, Oliver Tipido, Tip. Um, and uh, he shared a little bit of his experience in World War II. I mean, this has repercussions that last generations and that these two men were put to the heights of uh, the church's magisterium uh, to rep literally be successors of St. Peter himself yeah. is an incredible gift for us in the world to bring healing to yeah. so much devastation. You know, what a gift and that I they are. I think that it those experiences put them in a really good place. When we see popes, they are older men, right? And it's very easy to think that, you know, people that much older are out of touch with <laughs> the, the contemporary setting in the world, with younger people, with all of that. Though it is interesting, the insane crowds that both these popes attracted at World Youth Days, mm -hmm. right? This is very, it wasn't just John Paul II, but Benedict as well. But then, if you look at their history, um, John Paul II, of course, has to have experiences with both uh, Nazism and communism, both. Right. And obviously, Benedict did as well. And of course, this was, uh, I remember back in the day, people kind of trying to throw this, this shade on Benedict, um, trying to make him out to maybe be an anti-Semite. He was in the Nazi youth. So, well, let's let's hold right. on here a moment, okay? You know, let's let's look at the actual history. His family, um, himself, his siblings, his parents, were uh, utterly opposed to the rise of, of of Nazism in Germany, and he was drafted into. Uh, it was required, mandated that you be part of the the Nazi youth. He was fourteen years old. And shortly thereafter, he was drafted into the actual military, and he deserted and oh spent a brief gosh. period of time as a prisoner of war. And I think that's I think that's really worth thinking about because it's amazing. What what does this mean? It's obvious he did not go into Nazi youth because he wanted to be one. Right. It was something required. He accepted the requirement as long as it was necessary, and then when it was pushed too far, he bounced right. I, which put him and perhaps his family at great personal risk. Um, but you also have to remember he's fourteen at the time. Yeah. You know, I, was, I found myself thinking about this. I was thinking about even of his deserting, his deserting the Nazi army, right? When he was like forcibly drafted into it. At that age. He was what, 15 or 16 but then by that point. And you think, you think to yourself, well, I'm not sure what we expect. For a man who lived to be 95 years old, and we want to hold against him the fact that he didn't stand up and be a martyr at 14 when they tried to draft him into the into the Nazi youth, where he didn't even have to do anything active. Yeah, you know what you mean? can't even imagine what was going on culturally and all yeah. of the pressure and... And, and to say once it, you know, momentum. Once, once it got more extreme and it was like, okay, you're actually going to have to fight for this doctrine, he's like, no, I'm out. He, he disappears. He, he deserts. He risks, potentially risks his life. Yes. Yeah. He was 14 years old, though. Yeah. You know, how much can change over the course of a person's life um, we don't even understand those circumstances. I don't think we know how advanced things were at that point in time. It was required for a 14-year-old to sign up for this. 
Right. I mean, that's very, that's very complex. And I think it's, it's really sad that we will sit and judge a person over that when they stood it's, against it, spoke against the it, nature left of the it, risked attitude. their life to leave it, right. you know, all of these things. But the reason I brought that up was he had to live through Nazism. John Paul II had to. <coughs> Pardon me. It does and seem so, like, a, like, again, more slurs. There was a lot is. of slurs directed at uh, Pope Benedict. But yeah, uh, sorry definitely. to interrupt. Yeah. yeah. Well, it just kind of, kind of was making me think that one of the things, or a couple of the things that both of these men um, had interest in in their pontificates, <coughs> pardon me, were questions like poverty and economics. Things that we might not expect these, you know, these two aged, especially one that's seen as old-fashioned popes to be thinking about, worrying about questions of the economy. Was and the, what was that bad Anthony Hopkins movie? Did you guys see that? The Netflix? <laughs> <coughs> the two popes? Oh, yeah with, uh, yeah, with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, it was like, it was like, um, it made them both look like it was like the worst caricatures of uh, both Pope Francis and Pope Benedict. I never saw right, what, as if they were like enemies or opposed to each other. Or frenemies or like, right, yeah, right. I thought they were going to go like constantly ride, bickering, ride, ride on a moped with each other and like throw their <laughs> zucchettes off at the end. Like, oh, Francis, Pope Francis or Pope? Yeah, both was, of them were in there. It was a movie that put the two popes up together right. as if they're opposed to one another. And that's the. That's the Hollywoodized well, that's version. So when of you said when you the said the church. old man, I really saw that that they have this <laughs> depiction of Pope Francis is this young and cool Pope coming right. in, which he, he he's not young. He's right. kind, he's pretty cool, okay, yeah. for an eighty five year old man. But he's not. He wasn't coming in there. He actually, in my opinion, I know forty years old on a motorcycle. I know he has mobility right. issues now, but when he first became Pope, Pope Francis, he seemed older to me because he wore the glasses. The really yeah. thick glasses. Oh, and right, right. He, he had kind of a more elderly appearance then. He's gotten more youthful as he's aged. But yeah, so they made that. So you talking about the the aged, old-fashioned, they really played up this this uh, dichotomy. And they talked about like Pope Francis loves soccer and he's watching soccer and he's in these. Pope Francis says like, I haven't watched soccer since 1990. Like he made a promise to Our Lady. And hasn't watched soccer in like 30 years or more now. So like, uh, yeah, I, I, I just that, whatever that, that dialectic. Well, Hollywood doesn't exactly care about the truth. It's true. They did but, a yeah. great job of making it look like they were actually in the Vatican though, for that. Yeah, it's, it's a perception. I, I think that, that perception, I think what I, was, what I was trying to get at there is it's easy for us to have the idea and we see an elderly Pope in the Vatican surrounded by all the things that are there in the Vatican to imagine them as being completely out of touch, right, with the ordinary people. Maybe a great theologian, maybe a holy man, but you're out of touch with what's going on in the world. Right. And that's not true necessarily. It doesn't have to be true for any pope. But I think with those two, th what they had lived through in those crucial moments of the beginning of the last century put them so deeply in touch with questions of totalitarianism, with questions of poverty, with questions of racial justice, with all of these things, yeah. that even uh, when they were when they were far more advanced in years, they could not forget or leave that behind. And then they were able to use the pontificate with its reach to continue to address those issues in ways that people who are young right now find convincing, find authentic, find inspiring. Um, so. Yes. 
Yeah, I, th I think that it's, I think that um, it is not an accident that the Holy Spirit guided those men to be, uh, guided the church to uh, appoint those men as, as the popes. I think we needed it after what the world had been going through in the 20th century. Amen. Mm. A tough time. I mean, probably, I mean, arguably one of the toughest times in human history. Oh, absolutely. The, the, I mean, the post-war era. The 20th century was filled with the most martyrs. You know, uh, the worst kind of human suffering that any other societies have ever dealt with. Most deaths due to war, most, I mean, yeah. It's, it's... crazy, the, the the dichotomy there, too, with all this technological advancement, um, better diet, uh, you know, less, less child deaths mm -hmm. um, due to, you know, more natural causes, yet... Uh, Absolutely better medicine. Yet and yet, you know, right. people people we at the still beginning not learned to love each other. In 1927, <laughs> right. kids were most kids were still being born with what is it the with like rickets mm -hmm. where their bones aren't shaped correctly from lack of uh, is it vitamin D. Yeah, like, I so. yeah. So I mean, all kinds of issues you never even hear about anymore. This the these these issues, but yeah, it just it just delved into to absolute madness. He lived quite a life. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I would say that that's a, a good place um, to stop for now. And we'll be right back with more Spirit Inspire after this short break. Family Renewal Project is our local Theology of the Body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They are having a crash course on Theology of the Body on February 3rd and 4th at St. Margaret Mary Catholic Church. This is an incredible opportunity to begin exploring God's master plan for each one of us. Theology of the Body is indeed the answer that we have so desperately needed to this current culture of chaos and confusion. To learn more or to register, go to bit.ly slash tob1-cc-0223. Or to see the calendar, go to familyrenewalproject.com slash events. And we're back with more Spirit Inspire. We're talking about um, the, the death of Pope Benedict. I almost said the untimely death, but 95 years old. And we, <laughs> we had just finished talking about... Um, what a great life he had lived and, and the happy death that, that he had. Right. Um, I really wanted to, to shift gears and talk about some of his writings a little more because uh, as listeners know and as you guys know, I'm a, a gigantic nerd. We know that yeah, pretty it's, well. It's pretty clear. It, <laughs> it's true, folks. Um, so I, I would say I've read a lot of his writings. A lot of the things you read that, that Pope Benedict put out were maybe speeches, homilies, encyclicals. Um, one that comes to mind is he, he wrote in the beginning, it was, um, some talks and homilies that he gave about Genesis, uh, that are absolutely fantastic in the late eighties. But I, I think that he thought, um, his masterwork was really his Jesus of Nazareth, uh, series. And, uh, I've always been fascinated by, you know, the life of Christ books. One for the, the reason that, we already have the Gospels. Why do these need to be written? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was my initial reaction when I would see one. Um, but Gardini's The Lord, I think, is maybe one of the best that that has a great theological input. Uh, but I think that Pope Benedict wrote literally the best uh, Life of Christ with that Jesus of Nazareth series. He didn't think he was going to be able to even complete the first one, and he completed all three. Wow. Um, and he wrote these while he was Pope, right? 
I think that uh, at least one or two. I think of them? that uh, the initial one was mostly written while he was a cardinal, but I think mm. they all most of them were released while he was pope. I think wow. at least one of them was written though while he was pope. Right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Which is very rare for a sitting pope to do anything besides encyclicals. So, like, sit down and write a volume of just write like, a book. Or, yeah. Or, right. Or exhortation. Yeah. And a great yeah. book. I mean, if if you don't read anything else that uh, that Pope Benedict wrote. I would say those Jesus of Nazareth books. The first one he wrote was was the Jesus of Nazareth, um, and it and it really I think talks about um, you know from his baptism maybe until Holy Week, and then the next volume he did um, was from Holy Week um, I think to the Resurrection, and then um, he went back and redid the infancy narratives um, to finish the entirety of Christ's uh, earthly life. And uh, I mean, wow, they're they're just absolutely stunning. Um, some of the things like uh, one thing that's just coming to mind that just little tidbits he points out is like in Luke's gospel that Luke has to have had a first hound account of uh, from Mary yeah. um, because how else would he have known that? She kept these things in her heart. Right. You can't just guess that. Right. You can't, you can't just have that as hearsay. Oh, that sounds... Yeah, yeah. somebody told me that once. Yeah, yeah we, right. we talked to... I think this came up a little bit a few uh, weeks back when we were doing our Advent episode and we talked about Mary and the angelic uh, salutation. Okay. That that appears only in Luke's gospel. Yeah. Luke is the one gospel author who says, I went and like interviewed people basically, right, to get the facts about this. And it is this private conversation that the angel has with Mary. No one this, else could have known. this incredible title, right? The, the, the amazing, like, basically non-existent Greek word that was created to be yeah. her name full of grace. And we, we read right over that. And then you have to actually step back and think historically, whoa, how did Luke know about this? And why is Luke the only one that records it? He had to have gotten this straight from the lips of the Blessed Virgin herself. Yeah. Had to have. And that seems to be uh, why he's got these particular specific stories about Mary and comments about her in the Gospel of Luke is he had to have spent some time with her. Yeah. I think, too, one of the things that sticks out to me about this, not to get too far off track, but I don't think we can ever get be too far off track. We're great about getting off track. Our Lady, this, yeah. This well, Pope Benedict is the one who prompted this. I mean, he yeah. wrote all of yeah. this out himself. Yeah. So we're just gleaning from but, his own wisdom but right this wasn't a pope benedict but i'm just reflecting on it while we're sitting here is um one of the things that uh that marian apparitions what one of the things that sticks out to me is that many of them when people encounter these things uh something that lends to their credibility in my opinion is that it does they very similarly follow a formula as to what mary experienced in her life um just a glimpse. Uh, it's never, you know, um, something that that breaks that mold. I mean, it's as extraordinary as Mary seeing an angel who who gives her a message, but but it follows that similar formula of a meek, uh, lowly, mm -hmm. whether it be a handmaiden, but a child. Right. Uh, in many cases, shepherd and they, children. They they yeah. hear they hear. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, Bernadette Subaru, mm. and they hear a message. And they, they come away in a childlike way with, with knowledge mm -hmm. of some deep theological truth that they could have never figured out themselves. Uh, in Ber St. Bernadette's case, uh, I am the Immaculate Conception. Right, before 
in the years leading up to the actual uh, proclamation. Sure, and then uh, and then you know, and our it late... had just been promulgated, hadn't it? Or no, wood... no, no, it hadn't. It, it was, was like three... a year or two oh. away. Okay, I, mean, I this... thought it had been, but it was just unlikely that she could have known about it at that point. I'd have to look into the that. Yeah, I'd have was to look 19... that up. Was 1858, right? Yeah, I yeah, would, but I thought it was all on the same. What, regardless, regardless, you're right. Yeah, she wouldn't still, have known. There's no way she. A little Similarly, with Our Lady in the, in Luke's Gospel, it's like, well, this had almost would have had to have happened, uh, if it's true at all, right? It, right. If it wasn't just some big forgery, um, that that you know, there's no way that this this lowly handmaiden, um, Mary, would have. Uh, this giant Greek word that yes. has this big theological meaning, um, you know, she would almost have had to have had heard this to and even word know which, about it. Interesting enough, virtually means the same thing as the Immaculate Conception title. Yeah, <laughs> that's know? crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm. Uh, Pope Benedict wrote so much that I think it, it would take, as we talked about in our last segment, like. It's going to take so much time to really unpack. And I think of him as like that hidden gem yeah. underneath the giant of John Paul II. And I think that's what I was trying to hint at earlier, not to interrupt you, is yeah. but John Paul II's legacy, right. while it's going to go on and endure for years, a lot of it became obvious really quickly, right? Stuff right. like the theology of the body and people are like breaking that out and everything. I think that Benedict's um, legacy is possibly as rich, but... I think it's a little bit more hidden, a little more obscure. Yes. And I think it's the kind of legacy that it's we're going to start getting at 100 years from now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think it's just going to take longer to, yes. to break and, out. And, and in such a beautiful way, he will always be grafted to John Paul II uh, because of his, first off, his relationship with him when he worked with him in that time during his papacy, but also as a way of trying to continue his legacy and become, I mean, obviously he, he was himself, right? He wasn't just a, a robot following protocol. He had his own way of approaching uh, all of these complex issues, but he, he also saw his own limitations. He didn't travel um, nearly as much or as intensely as John Paul II did, right? Uh, by the grace of God, Though I actually got to see him with my own eyes myself when I was uh, not with somebody else's at eyes. World. Stop! Now <laughs> looking through Gary Gilmore's eyes <laughs> yes. in Madrid for World Youth Day, I actually got to see him. Which Wait, was, Gary Gilmore was in Madrid? No, Pope okay. Benedict was oh, in Madrid. Okay. I'm done with you. Um, <laughs> but we know World Youth Day was, uh, you know, a, a legacy of John Paul II, right? So. I was going to say this in the last segment, but uh, here we are. So Pope Benedict becomes Pope in April of 2005. And it just so happens that that very year, two or three months later, the World Youth Day that is happening just happens to be in Cologne, Germany for the newly elected German pontiff. That to me is like a profound spiritual godwink, right, about the 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 beauty of the church's uh, direction. Where is she headed, right? You, you have that, that old adage um, of, uh, of as the church prays, so does she believe, right? And so to me, it's like these critical milestones in the church, 
when a new pope is elected, for instance, to me kind of dictate the direction the church is heading and, and the affirmation from God that it truly is the Holy Spirit that gives us our leader yeah. during these critical times, you know, especially to receive the gift of their insights on a level that may never have been, uh, that may have never reached us if he had just remained a cardinal of the church. I, I just, this just came to me too when you're talking about, um, you know, these big events and those, those two popes being interconnected. Uh, John Paul II, really known as a Fatima Pope with the, the consecration, uh, him the assassination attempt on Our Lady of Fatima's feast day, him giving the bullet um, to Fatima being put in the crown, right. the fall of the Berlin Wall, fall of the Soviet Union, um, all of those sorts of things. Um, but but Benedict also being a Fatima Pope in the in the sense that before he was Pope, you know he was really um, it, it, doing a lot of the Fatima stuff was was being filtered through him alongside JP two when he was Pope, and I I think even with Benedict, um, well a lot of the Fatima conspiracy theorists, <laughs> which is really a subsection of culture, right. would say that public enemy number one. Was uh, was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was the was right. the number one enemy of Fatima, but he was the <laughs> one who ultimately promulgated through the CDF the third secret in two thousand. You guys can correct right. me if I'm wrong. He did, but he promulgated the third secret and gave a little bit of theological insight into it with that document. Well, you'll get your conspiracy theorists who say, well, that's not the whole secret right. and there's all kinds of things. Yeah, but, but he regardless. he released it. Yeah. And also it has that line in uh, in there about um, the Holy Father enduring much yes. suffering. Yes. And it says something to the effect of, uh, of it will be like, um, you know, the Holy Father will be like, and you, conspiracy theories pick up on this line, but I always did attribute it to there's two, it says a, the bishop in white, and it'll say it'll be like one passes um, past a mirror, which there's two. And I think that it was very providential that at the time there's all this crazy stuff. I mean, this is me getting a cons ancient aliens conspiracy theorist right. over here. But I mean, at the time when, um, you know, Pope Francis had to reconsecrate Russia to mm -hmm. the Immaculate Heart, what's the chance of that ever happening? I know. And Pope Pope Benedict being alive at that time, a lot of suffering in Russia, the Ukraine, a lot of uh, errors being spread there. Uh, I mean, it, it just seems like he was a Fatima Pope. He lived through, his papacy wasn't really overshadowed it, but um, you know, his, his predecessor and his successor, he was kind of that Fatima link um, between those two who I would consider Pope Francis now at this point a, a very Fatima Pope as well. Yes. Given the events of Russia, the yep. Ukraine, and the consequences. Was, and the I fact would. that World Youth Day is literally getting ready to be in Portugal. Portugal. And it's Pope still Francis unfolding. Is, yeah. yeah. Right. It's still was, unfolding. I was really, really happy with that consecration. Um, that was unexpected, I think. I, I, I was really profoundly overjoyed with that. What each of you all are saying here makes me think of something I did kind of want to chat about a little bit because we're talking about conspiracy theories <laughs> and we're talking about Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. And we all know there's plenty of conspiracy theories going on with this kind of stuff. And you mentioned the fact that with the third secret of Fatima, even though it was released, 
by Pope Benedict when he was still a cardinal. Is that problematic? There we go. Okay. Um, that then the conspiracy theorists say, well, it hadn't actually been fully released or it had been changed or doctored and all this. And there's books being written about this. Yeah. Which reminded me of a favorite joke of mine. Oh, a gosh. couple of conspiracy theorists die and go, go to heaven, right? And they look at each other and they say, now we're finally going to get to know all the facts, right? <laughs> so they get up there before God and they say, all right, God, who really was responsible for the attack on the, the Twin Towers on September the 11th? God says, Al-Qaeda. And so they ask another question, right? And they get the expected answer back. And, you know, like, who killed JFK? Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Finally look at each other and say, this conspiracy goes up higher than we thought. <laughs> right? So there, there's this, I think, kind of idea with conspiracy theories that even when you think you've proved it, well, you can then find a conspiracy to, to show why that proof is a conspiracy. You know, uh -huh. you, you can just never stop. And it gets it gets a little wackier and wackier. Yeah. Every time. and you 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 basically create this perception, this worldview of never being satisfied mm -hmm. and always looking to tear something down, tear something apart. It's no different, be direct, than wokeism. You know, yeah. everything's bigoted, racist. Everything's evil. Everything's corrupt. Here, everything's And I'm going to find it, and that's yeah. all I'm looking for. It's the same thing with conspiracies. And I think it's a mindset. I think it so. Is. It, so there, there are real conspiracies. There are real power uh, moves. There are real corruption. There yeah, are real people really do real conspire lies, together to right? do There are real lies. Sure. There are real manipulations of people by governments and wealth and all of that. Right? That is that happens. To me, the the problem with the conspiracy theory thing is is the mindset. Wherever under everything you're told. You, you can't trust it because you're looking for the most unlikely answer, right? Because it's exciting, it's titillating, it's... Yeah. I, I've described it before as pornography for the mind, right? It's this, I can never look at anything without wanting to know what's the real secret behind this, right? Yeah. You know, it's this kind of... It's a Life's mindset. interesting enough. Life is very interesting. So the but reason, this adds too much seasoning. The reason, right, right is then it's like, <laughs> it's like the 10 at the Thai restaurant. Yeah. So the reason I bring this up is because... I mentioned in our first segment that I, I sometimes feel like Pope Benedict has been co-opted by some who, and I don't know really how to say this, I don't know what's a good term, because I don't really like the terms that are out there right now. I'm a pretty traditional person, right? I'm, I'm a pretty conservative person. Um, I have frequently attended Latin Mass, for example. So um, I know there's terms get thrown around like, you know, rad trad and stuff like that. I find that a little insulting. I don't really like to go there. I'm um, glad I could have made the seasoning joke later now that you said it's insulting. Ah, uh, insulting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You're fired. Continue. Yes. <laughs> but there's there are some kind of maybe fringe elements and I, I don't mean that insultingly but that that are that are getting borderline into set of vacantism you know just really questioning a lot of stuff are are is our current pope even a real pope you know right. maybe and and not just francis but going all the way back to the second vatican council that maybe the church went off the rails then and you know we've got to go back to the latin mass we got to go back pre-vatican II and Okay, so I kind of want to talk about that for a moment. Pius V was the last. Uh, yeah. Well, there's always uh, that. Pius, you can yeah. always go back and 
pick this magic golden age. Yeah, maybe maybe not... Peter was the last authentic pope. Right. Yeah. right, right. Um, a lot of our pr Protestant brethren, that would probably be doctrinally. Yeah, that might might be one the right. one and only. There's only one, yeah. Well, and then you mentioned this this I was on a movie or whatever called The Two Popes, which I I've, I've never seen. Yeah. But good, all... good for you. <laughs> I'll try right. to keep it that way. Don't need to see it. And so this is a conspiracy thing that you're probably familiar with, but a couple of years ago this was during COVID, 2020 lockdowns. I went down some really bad rabbit holes, <laughs> right, with conspiracy stuff. I think the whole world Anyone did. Anyone ever done that before? I think I, the whole I world did. That. Right. And so things were weird. I like the mole men. Yeah. The mole men that live under the sewers. The mole men. Yes, yeah, yes. I remember that. I remember that. That's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> Y2K. Yes. It's another favorite. Yeah. yeah. I have to explain that to my students. They have no context on Y2K. They're like, yeah, I think I've heard of that. Is that like a Madden? The, the moon landing. landing is my favorite. Yeah. The moon landing. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Okay. All right. Yeah. Anyways, go on. Bigfoot. Any, yeah, but anyway, so... Uh, Cryptozoology. Area 51. <laughs> hey, that's real. Loch Ness no, Monster. All right, anyone yeah. else? <laughs> See, those are the big obvious ones. But... Oh, QAnon. Yeah. Write down your favorite conspiracy theory right. in the email. comments Actually, today. please don't leave any conspiracy theories in the comments. Yeah, actually, rather email us at spiritinspiredaol.com and we'll, uh, we'll be sure to check those out. Yeah. But this, <laughs> we'll look into it. This is church-related conspiracy theory. Like, like, sure, we're all familiar with the moon landing stuff and, and Y2K yeah. and all that. Whether those are conspiracy... Church, church those conspiracy aren't all conspiracy theories. Exciting. You know, right. some of those are just like fear-mongering uh, or, or just excessive fear. Like well, even in the Fatima one where, where people get you know, you talk about today, you see a lot of people who are crazed by conspiracy theories, the smaller echo chamber kind of thing yeah, yeah. on no matter what their political ideology is or their their status in life, people can get consumed by this. But there was that monk in the 80s talking about the Fatima thing who got so obsessed with them releasing the third secret, took a bunch of gasoline and held a plane hostage in the air really? and said he was going to blow it up. And he was a former uh, Trappist monk from Australia, and he had been living as a tour guide at Fatima in Portugal, and he had just become obsessed with this conspiracy around it that he... I never heard it of It was super dramatic. Yeah. That's insane. He, he had held him hostage Jeez. and said, unless the Vatican releases the third secret, he's going to blow the, the whole thing up. Um, I think they ended up, you know... Taking handling the situation, right, right. But uh, just even then, you know, it, it's not a new phenomenon that people get yeah. into these these conspiracies. Yeah. Well, one of one of those conspiracies, and I kind of thought it might be worth addressing this. You mentioned the whole two popes thing, is that's been going on for a while now because this element, which does exist within the church, um, again, this sort of more fringe, you know, hyper traditional, whatever you want to call it. Um, has had real problems with Pope Francis, mm -hmm. right? Very, very, uh, even to questioning the legitimacy of his papacy. And one of the things that triggers that is the fact that Pope Benedict resigned. Most popes, obviously, as we know, die in office, but he's not the first. This is not an anomaly. It's right. not a complete not anomaly. New. Not only is it acceptable, and, and there are grounds for this, but... We've it, never had a Pope Emeritus before. Right. And that's true. That's just, that's a new term, to be fair. And but also, then, we've right. never had, uh, like, a pope who resigned and then didn't just 
go back to where he's from and dress as an old cardinal. Right. Like the fact there was someone no, in the Vatican. He himself. Still wearing white is, and all of that. It's strange. So he himself was not happy with that. He he even said that he had he had the energy to like try to fight the fight it. He wanted to be called Father Joseph afterwards. Father Joseph, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he was not responsible for the Pope Emeritus thing. And uh, there's a record of this. Uh, there's a new book actually came out called Father Joseph that discusses this. Um, or I don't know if it's new, maybe a few years old now, huh. but um, I've not read it. At any rate, so because this was unusual, I think it gave fuel to the fire. Right. It's as if you have two popes there, right? right. And so this caused even deeper questions. What if Pope Francis wasn't a legitimate pope? What if Pope Benedict, being more conservative, right? And this is coming from people who feel like he's on their side, right? Uh -huh. He was maybe forced out. Maybe it's like he's being held hostage. You know, also oh, yeah, all these, like they have him trapped in there. Yeah, so all the all of these <laughs> conspiracy theories came out. So in 2020, with COVID going on, um, a lot of and this is this is interesting to me because I came from a Protestant background, and there are certain certain areas of Protestantism where end times prophecies are really really big, and we tend to not mess with that too much in the Catholic Church, but. You're all gonna they, you're gonna have to face it one way or another. Well, everyone's end time is coming within a hundred right. years anyway. Yeah, so, but right. there have been certainly end time prophecies, and this became a really big thing the last few years. Like you see a lot of Catholics really getting the end time prophecies. We've got this plague, this COVID over all the world. We've got these lockdowns. We've got crazy political elections. Like what's happening? Problems with the abuse right. scandal of the you've church got, making people you know, feel You've got odd. the third secret from Fatima. And now we've War got this, in Russia. Right. In Russia. Yep. Right. All of that. And right. I am not one to discount that. This could very well be the end times. But my point is that in during COVID, I started becoming aware of some of this. And I think we were all seeking for some kind of knowledge, security, and answers, right? And so I kind of went down a rabbit hole with this. Um, and it got a little fringe, uh, getting into some of these end time prophecy things. Did not you have maybe, a Mohawk? No. Okay. <laughs> not maybe approved, right? right? Right. And a lot of conspiracy theories happening. And it began to sow doubts and questions in my mind. And a good uh, priest friend of, of all of ours, Father Jonathan Erdman, um, I talked to him about it once. And he, interestingly enough, guessed immediately what one of them was that I was into. He's like, are you reading such and such? It's like, yes. And he said, stop. Like he was just straight about it. it. It was it was hurting me mentally, right? I was going into fear and depression and anxiety. It was not approved things, and I was really going into this conspiracy theorist sort of rabbit hole. But while I was doing that, I came across a quote, and I wanted to just mention this, and because I know I've kind of gone on for a while, but this is the point of all this. This quote was shocking to me, um, and it was being used on some Catholic website to demonstrate this whole strange scenario with Francis and Benedict, in which there appeared to have been a prophecy from a saint, um, a vision that predicted a time when there was going to be two popes. And the older one, it's obviously assumed to be Benedict, is the good holy one who is undergoing like facing persecution. And the other one is letting in all this evil influence to the church, right? And that would therefore be Francis. This was kind of the interpretation of this. How convenient right? that that would come up, right? As we need to hear it. And so right. I'm, I'm reading this quote and I discovered this quote has been shared all over the internet. And I thought with the, the passing of Pope Benedict, it would be good to mention this and lay it to rest, lest it 
lead anyone astray. And this also shows us the great danger of not looking at primary sources, of mm -hmm. looking at not only secondary or tertiary, but maybe 500 down the road. Yeah. Is quotes, even when they're accurate, that have parts of them left out or taken out of context. And this comes from blessed, I think now Saint, Catherine Ann Emmerich. Oh, yeah. I don't, okay. I don't know if she's canonized. She's blessed at least. Blessed, yeah. Right. Um, and so... Also, the writings, were, they... There's questions they, in the translations. They, they push the writings out as part of the canonization, so they're not included. Right. They can't be um, included. But there was a major question, has been, on the writings, because I think it was a, a priest who sat at her bedside and took down all of her visions towards the end of her life. Yes. There's major questions on uh, some kind of like translation or language barrier there on how accurate those books really and are. Also, I think, I don't know if it was a priest, but whoever it was, whoever. there was some suspicious activity yeah. where he could have altered it. All, however, I did hear the Ephesus house, that's Our Lady's house in Ephesus, that an archaeologist used those visions. Yes. And they found it. the Ephesus house just based off yes. of her visions. No, so, that is true. That is true. So, uh, and they, they, there's a lot of people who think that's legitimate archaeologists who, uh, wow, you know, have looked at it and said it's definitely from that time period. You can't tell who lived here. And the fact that they right. just went off of her visions and found a house right where she said it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a little period. bit weird. So, hmm. her, I, I'm not here to say yay or nay. It's not even my place to do so on the validity of her visions. But she's a blessed. And so even though these are private revelations, so we are not duty-bound to, to adhere to them, um, I think we would expect that a, a blessed or a saint, a holy person, having mystical experiences, we might at least think there's some reasons to pay attention to what they say that they, they witnessed, sure. right? We sure. don't have to say it's gospel truth. Um, so let's assume that for I'm a moment. I'm also a skeptic, by the way, by, by trade. Okay. But... but let's assume that for a moment. And let's assume that they were accurately recorded. What did the quote say? Well, yes, it the quote was legitimate. I found that much out. But I didn't try to trace it down. And so this was influencing me. I was looking at this like, this is too perfect. She prophesied about a time in the church. There's going to be two popes. It's not supposed to happen, right? And there's this one, this elderly pope, and there's this other one who's like, you know, maybe more liberal, we would think, and is doing damage to the church and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, wow, this is freaky. Okay, so what was wrong with the whole thing? Well, I finally found out. The quote absolutely comes from her book. It absolutely comes from a vision. But there is an ellipse. There's some dot, dot, dots in the middle of it. She never once said the two popes existed at the same time. Quite the opposite. <laughs> she says, in my visions, and I'm not quoting this exactly, I saw two popes. The first, and now she travels back in time to a pope that existed early in the church. Um, I don't know. I think people have probably tried to figure out which pope this was, right? Who was a man of great holiness and faith, who fought, who was persecuted, who dealt with many trials and helped to build God's church. And then her vision switches to the future, she can contrast this pope with another pope. But you take that out and it makes you think... Look as if there's a time in the future when two popes, an yeah. older and younger one, will exist side by side. This is where you side. lay this kind of stuff And so you see how that one ellipse changes the entire meaning. She saw a vision of two popes. One there, one over here. And it made to look like us if they were both together. And conspiracy theories work. Yeah. And so I just kind of want to mention that because that actually had some negative influence on me for a while um, before I found the, the true true nature of the actual well, quote. When it comes to the, the name of a person, 
and in this episode, we're, we're looking at the name of Pope Benedict, you know, uh, we always want to bring honor and goodness to the person in, in so far as like, in, in so far as it is true, right? And so if you were trying to bring goodness or propping them up in comparison to someone that you're trying to tear down or, or because you didn't like the person you're trying to tear them down by tell, uh, selling falsehoods, sowing falsehoods, none of that does justice to the dignity of the person. For instance, right. I was reading a book uh, by Jason Everett when John Paul II was canonized. And he was sharing stories that no one had ever published before. And it came out the very weekend of his canonization. And in his introduction, he said that I am not here to uh, share stories or legends of things that John Paul II did because it would not help his character to share anything that's not true. So I have tracked down these people to interview them and, and to share only the things that I have been able to validate that are absolutely true to the character and love that this man showed his people. So I feel in the same way, we would want to do that kind of justice to the dignity of Pope Benedict XVI, who I believe one day could very well be raised to the heights of sanctity. I, I personally, in the you know, it's not our judgment, but I personally feel the same way. And I think that, you know, one of the one of the kind of last things that I wanted to say in that conspiracy theory end was I think there was a lot of ideas going around in certain circles that he was legitimate pope and, you know, maybe Bene, maybe that was Bene going to Vicantis. be... Yeah, Bene Vicantis. And maybe <laughs> right. that was going to, like, be revealed. Maybe he'd make a big comeback, you know? And, um, which, which I see in, like, I mean, at best, like, a 92-year-old person yeah. make this comeback. I mean, it, it's just a stretch. And I think there was, you know, people were trying to, there was ideas that there was bad blood between him and Francis, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I think that it's not helpful. I think it's not beneficial. I think we are allowed, within reason as Catholics, we do need to submit to the authority of the Pope and the Church and have as much respect as possible. I think it is also within our rights to occasionally say, mm, I don't think that was a good move, right? I think we are allowed, provided we're not falling into the errors of gossip or having a critical spirit, I think we are certainly allowed to, you know, judge that certain things may not be wisely said or perhaps particularly well handled. Yes, popes are given a special position. They are human, however, they're infallible, not impeccable. Yeah. But if we are to be faithful children of the church, which means faithful to Christ, we need to be able to be humble and obedient. And I think that this is one of the greatest dangers. Um, it's a danger that has honestly afflicted me in many times because I may not like what a bishop or a pope is saying, and I want them to come out, you know, more orthodox. But when I begin to develop this attitude, um, that, and I'm seeing this a lot in certain areas of the church, I think we all are, um, and then we begin to question, maybe it's not a legitimate pope, maybe we got to do this or that, then we are, instead of being Orthodox Catholics, we're actually beginning to act like Protestants, mm -hmm. right? Which is what a couple of us at least came from and converted from. Uh, knowing full well that we were going to have to submit in obedience, saying, I have come to believe that this is the church of God, that God guides it, right? And that by being obedient and faithful to the church, I am being obedient and faithful to God. 
Um, so I think that maybe um, these ideas are not only not helpful, but maybe they're not healthy. Um, and, and I think that it yeah. may be a really good idea to look at somebody like Benedict and say, he is precisely who he was. He cared about the truth. He obviously allowed room for the Latin mass to come back. He appreciated its beauty, its reverence. He didn't try to get rid of the Novus Ordo. He never said it was bad. So yes, he's conservative on one side, but he was a completely in the spirit of Vatican II. There is not a shred of evidence that he was kicked out of the papacy and held hostage. You know, this is not helping our world heal. These ideas are not helping our church heal. Right. You know, let's take it for what it was. Read what he wrote. Hear what he said. He said he and Francis got along just fine. Yeah, I... Uh... You know, he said why he stepped down. Let's maybe accept people at their word on these things and view him um, and his successor as well for precisely who they are yes um which i think are very good men i think that uh i think you're right and you know there's this novelty of infighting yeah uh, among catholics and and i say novelty because sure there's been problems in the church in the past but i i don't know it just seems like every day it's almost satanic that that you have so many small issues that are that are disagreed upon that that really don't matter, and uh, it's grave scandal um, to anyone yeah. presume, pursuing Catholicism, pursuing the fullness of truth, pursuing Christ, to see um, any Christians to have division, uh, and and perhaps that's why you know Christ spoke so much of praying um, for for the church to be one. And, and John and, seventeen, right, yeah, the high priestly prayer, and and Saint Paul, the Corinthians. I mean, he spares. No level of harshness on, you know, if you divide the body of Christ. We have to work towards um, towards this, this, this Christian unity, especially in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. We're already Catholic. We're already universal. Um, that, that's, it's in the name that, um, you know, how all the energy and effort that people can spew out, you know, anger from, from conspiracy theories from, from these videos— they need to work towards unity, especially with those in the church, their fellow brothers, um, that they don't agree with. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Um, so we'll have more Spirit Inspire next week. Thank you for watching.